Welcome to Cube Pushers, a podcast all about designer board and card games with a little bit of attitude. Here are your hosts, Bill Corey and Chris Dunbar. Welcome to Cube Pushers, the designer board and card game podcast with a little bit of attitude. This is episode number four, recorded on September 3rd, 2012. I'm Bill Corey. And I'm Chris Dunbar. Welcome to the show, everybody. If you've never listened to us before, we are a podcast all about designer board and card games. And if you don't know what that means, go back and listen to episode zero. We won't bore you with it anymore. So let's dive right into what we've been playing lately over the last week or so. Chris, you got Hawaii to the table, did you? Yeah, I did. Did on Tuesday we got to uh, we got our game group together and I played Hawaii. Um, it was the second time I had played it, and yeah, I don't know. I was lukewarm the first time I had played that game. Okay. Um, and I, you know, the second play, I, I don't know. It it didn't really do much for me. But huh. you've played, right, Bill? Yeah, I played it and I actually really liked it. Uh, this was published by Rio Grande in 2011. Greg Daigle, I believe, is how you pronounce his name, yeah. um, is the designer of it. Um, and this game. I'm a big fan of the Dice Tower video reviews uh, done by Tom Vassell. I think he does a fantastic job of giving you the basic gist of a board game in five to ten minutes. And when he reviewed Hawaii, he made a joke review out of it and had his kid throw it in the garbage can before they even showed what was going on. Right. And so that immediately intrigued me. I'm like, hmm, I have to play this game. And then somebody brought it, I don't know, like two months ago to your game group, Chris. Yep. And I played it up there, and I really liked it. I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't call it thematic at all, and there are one or two things that I think are quite anti-thematic. Like, there's a there's a mechanic in the game where, uh, just in a nutshell, the island is covered with all of these different spaces, and you can spend little feet tokens to move your your dude around to a specific place and then buy the thing and the prices vary from turn to turn. They're randomized based on chips pulled out of a bag, what have you. Um, and then the things that you buy, you use to build your villages. And the idea is that it actually is somewhat similar to the game Vikings. I think in that aspect is that you have to build up the different rows and then the rows might or might not score depending on what you've tr- triggered yep. across the top, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, if, if anyone's ever played Vikings, they would definitely see the similarities there with, uh, with Hawaii or you're, you're building your village, you're, you're building, you know, rows across and your you know, your columns going down and, and yeah, certain stuff may score. It may not. Um, you may build, build a village entirely of stuff that doesn't even score at end game. Um, so it's interesting. The, the setup of the Island is varies from game to game too, which yep. is a, is a really neat concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and after playing the second time, I learned that it can greatly change, you know, the strategy and how the game is played. Right. Um, depending on where certain tiles end up, if they end up, you know, in uh, you know lower places uh, on the island and therefore easier to get to, um, they might end up cheaper in certain games than they do in other games. It really is going to impact how uh, how you play that particular game. So yeah. The one, you know, I actually really enjoyed the one time, and the one thing that I remember thinking is that I really want to play this again, because that variable board, I have a feeling, might give this game more staying power in my mind than a lot of other Euros, because the game can be so wildly different from game to game, and you can just tell from the first play, wow, on future plays, it's going to definitely affect how you play it. There's this one mechanic, though, that you start off basically in one end of the island and you have to spend movement points to go across the island but if, if in the form of these weird feet tokens. But if you ever don't spend the feet tokens and move, you immediately warp back to that first end of the island. So it has this weird sort of running up a conveyor belt feel 
which is completely anti-thematic and strange. I mean, maybe they're trying to say that they think Hawaiian people can't resist the beach and they have to actively fight against the pull of the ocean or some goober stuff like that. But Right, right, yeah. If you want to stay in the same spot and activate that tile again, you have to spend another foot token even though you're not moving anywhere. Um, and right. and then, yeah, if, if you're not spending feet to move, then, yeah, you go back to the island and you have to do an, an island action. And there's a couple different things you can do on the island um, and how everybody ends their turn on the island. They, they do the, the passing action, which is which is a beach action. So you have to go back to the beach to pass. Sure. So, that, so everyone ends their turn back on the beach. So you can't, you know, climb all the way up to the top of the hill, so to speak, and, and you know, set yourself up for next turn or whatever right i you know like i said i really i really like the game i think that it's one of those games that and and i'm usually the guy of the two of us that talks more about how the importance of theme versus versus mechanics but in this particular game i thought it was super interesting mechanically and i i really enjoyed it so and it's beautiful let's let's also point that out it is a gorgeous game absolutely fantastic bits you get these clever looking little feet that you actually, you know, little feet tokens or not tokens, but like wood pieces. Yeah. And then your, your money you spend is clams or, or <laughs> whatever the thing is. So they're the little orange clam looking things. There's also fruit in the game, which are little uh, green football shaped things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, the, the game is, is definitely gorgeous, but uh, you're absolutely correct. The theme is non-existent, no. um, but the mechanics are interesting. I'll, I'll give it that. It's yeah. It's got a, stuff I haven't seen in other games. You know, the whole traveling by feet mechanic is interesting. Um, the one thing I hate about the game, though, and I wasn't even the one doing it from turn to turn, is mm. the fiddly, fiddly setup. Yeah. First, first of all, it's fiddly just to get the game on the table, yep. and then after it's on the table, every single turn, you have to do this fiddly mechanic of pulling these out of a bag to price all of the different tiles on the board mm-hmm. and it's it's not just a oh i need to pull 20 chits out of a bag and throw them down you have to like do math and stuff and it's just annoying yeah i guess i you know and the funny thing was the guy that taught the game to me which i'm assuming this was dan the gimp that you played with hi dan yep. um you know he he immediately said yeah setup is kind of fiddly the only thing i could think to myself is there are a lot of games that i really enjoy that are as fiddly or more than that that i you know so i don't know that that to me isn't a deal breaker you know i i get where a lot of people maybe would be uncomfortable with the amount of time between turns and whatever but i thought that the game was interesting enough to warrant it so i don't know yeah but, it's yeah uh, you know I, like i said after i played the first time i definitely wanted to play a second time after my first play i was i was really lukewarm after my second play though it, it is firmly a six in my book which basically means <laughs> i i never need to play it again really if, if everybody wants to play it i'm fine with it but, but yeah i have no desire to ever touch it again. I won't actively avoid it, but yeah, I just and I you know and I don't even really have good reasons. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. super fiddly. There's no theme, but we've already determined that I could care less about theme. Right. Um. I, I think the mechanics are interesting. I think it does a lot of stuff well. I just the whole time it took like an hour and a half or two hours in the five player game that we did, and the whole time I was just like I could care less. Not only that, I was a had the entire game literally the entire game nobody ever surpassed me yep. i ended the game with the game ending score i lost i took second place but i only lost by like four points and i had beat the last three guys by like 10 or 15 yeah so you know that should typically skew my opinion uh you know in favor of a game you know if if i like a game that's always a plus for it i 
dominated almost this entire game, only lost by a few points right at the very end, and I still could care less if I ever play it again. Huh. And you know, the, the, and the whole reason I, I was doing, you know, uh, staying ahead, so far ahead the whole game is I did the lamest strategy on Earth, is I bought those little hut tiles where um, the, the chips that come out on the on the board that determine the prices that you're spending, some of them are normal uh, looking little chits and other ones are red and they have yep. like a little shield thing, right? So I bought the hut that says you get two victory points every time you buy a commodity that has the shield token. So after I bought a couple of those huts, I all I had to do the rest of the game was focus on where are the cheapest shield tokens. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have to think. Okay, what what is the lowest numbered shield token available when it comes around to me? Oh, there's a three. Let me buy it. Right. And it, it is just by the end of the game, every time I bought a shield token, I was getting six points. Right. And it was it was stupid. I didn't even have to think. Right. Now I'm sure with experienced players and stuff, that could be negated quite a bit. You know, people could block me off of buying those particular huts that give me those points. People could block me from buying the shields. But because I was so desperate for meeting the requirement. Every round, you have to spend a certain amount of money if you want extra victory points at the end of every round, right? Mm -hmm. And when you pass, you basically get even more money when you pass that adds up to your total. And when you pass, you're either deciding to go first and getting none of that extra money, or you're going somewhere in the middle and getting a little extra money, or you're choosing to go last next turn and getting a lot of extra money. Well. I, I was I, I was so money poor that I kept having to pass and put myself in last position to get that highest numbered chit. Mm-hmm. So I was still going last every single turn, yet I was still able to buy two or three shield tokens every single turn sure. and get anywhere from 12 to 18 points every single turn. And I didn't have to think at all. I mean, again, I've only played twice with experienced players that all go away. And it, it, it might be a moot point, but that just seemed incredibly lame. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and I and I I understand where you're going with this. And this is one of those things where I've thought this about a number of games. As a matter of fact, in my one and done later today, you'll hear me talk about this a little bit, is that there are some games that you can look at the game, realize that the game is really well designed and has a lot of interesting things going on and still not give a damn. If the game isn't fun, the game isn't fun. And, you know, it's just it is what it is. So. Even though I yeah. think you're completely wrong in every way, I totally respect that because, yeah, no, it's, I mean, you can't help it whether you like something or not. Right. I, I will say this. If you play it again, I think that the, the, because I did the exact same strategy that you just did the first time I played. That's, right. that's what I did too, except for I wasn't so unilateral about it. I actually went and did a couple other things along the way. Um, right. That I was, you know, fighting for a secondary source of points besides just that. And I felt like I was more engaged. I think if you pursue that strategy entirely, it's a strong strategy and it's not very fun. So Yeah, for sure. But I mean, if I do ever play it again, um, and again, I, I may, but if I do ever play it again, I'm going to do that strategy. I'm going to keep doing that strategy until I'm not in first or second place just to see if the game is that whack. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a one path, path game, yeah. Right. Then it's just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Even now it's instead of a six in my book, it's a four. Sure. Yep. You know, so... Okay, but at the moment, if you had to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, or I guess we invented the thumbs meh last episode. I would give it a thumbs meh. All right, gotcha. See, I I give it a thumbs up pending more plays. I, I, I agree with, I think, most of your concerns, but pending more plays, right now I'm still intrigued by it, and I still kind of keep hoping it'll hit the table in front of me. 
so sure. I can dig in a little deeper because I'm and I'm one of those guys that when I play a Euro that's got obvious multiple paths, I will try really hard to take a different path each time I play for the first right. two times. Yep. So I think that with a couple plays in that general direction, you know, it'll take that before I can really make a firm opinion. But so far, I think it's OK. Right on. So if you like pretty games with Euro-y mechanics and one definite path to victory, Hawaii, that's your Huckleberry right there. That's right. All right. I went to a birthday party for a um, very, very old friend this past weekend. And not very old because he's old. Very old because I've known him since I was a small child. <laughs> and right. he's he's a big board gamer, too. And so there was about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 of us sitting around going to play some board games that day. And I brought my bag of games that I always bring when I go anywhere. And they were like, so, hey, let's play a game. And I said, sure. Anybody want to play Panic Station? This is the 2011 release from Stronghold Games. Designed by David Osloos, and everybody was like, Panic Station, what's that? So I pulled it out, and it's in one of those lovely tins that I have been known to rant about from time to time. But right. in this particular case, that's handy because that means that that tin fits in one of the side pockets of my gaming bag really easily. So this is one of the few times I guess I can forgive him. It just never actually makes it onto my shelf. Anyway, so we sat down to play. And for those of you that don't know, Panic Station, I, the way that I describe it to people is it's sort of like John Carpenter's The Thing, the board game. The idea is that you are playing a team. Each player has a, is a two-man team. Um, so you control a human and an android. And there is an evil parasite thing that has infiltrated the compound that everybody's in. And the idea is that you're trying to avoid being infected, unless, of course, you are the evil guy. One of the players starts out, or at, or by the end of the first turn, will become infected. And then his goal is to infect other human players, turn them to his side, and prevent the hive from being destroyed by the stupid humans. Meanwhile, the humans are trying to not get killed. And during all the while, these mindless parasite things are spawning that can kill anybody that they come into contact with or at least wound them and then reduce the your effectiveness in the game. Uh, so it's got the hidden agenda kind of thing, a la Resistance and Werewolf and whatnot. I like to call it Battlestar Galactica in an hour, because I think it has a similar feel to that. But I taught the game, and, you know, I played this probably a half a dozen times. I know I taught it to you, Chris, once or twice a few, a few months ago. Yep. And I this game just stays solid. I think you have to have the right group. But as long as everybody gets into the spirit of the game and has a good time with it, and it's just it's just fun. Yeah, I've uh, yeah the one time we played, or I should say the one night we played, we actually played two games. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we played, yeah, I, I had a really good time, and I, I I look forward to trying that one again. Um, I think the first time we played, I don't know if it was because nobody really knew what was going on, or people were just being sloppy. But what did it take? What five six minutes? Yeah. Well, what <laughs> happened was that the board got built in the game the the Ah, compound is is discovered by pulling cards off of a deck and you can see what's already been discovered and you can always see the next room that's about to be discovered and we had a particularly craptastic shuffle that created basically four dead ends so the humans had nowhere to run right i remember that now it was the fastest game ever because basically i looked at the board and realized well we're screwed that's the end of that that makes me wonder, actually, if that's an if that's almost counts as a design flaw, because it is possible to create a game with a with a bad shuffle of that deck of cards that is 
all but unwinnable by one side or the other. As a matter of fact, in this particular game that we played on Sunday, myself and the way the game works is that whenever you move one of your people into a space that is occupied by another player's person, you are forced to trade cards with that person or you're forced to attack them, which you generally don't want to do until you have a good idea who the people on the other side of the fence are from you. And so I had traded successfully without getting infected a couple times with one guy. So I knew he could be trusted. And then he and I on consecutive turns drew uh, these special cards that allowed us to pass through these lockable doors where no one else could. So he and I, the two people that we knew were, were human and uninfected, ran behind locked doors and then could explore the complex freely while the alien players just sat outside flustered wanting to know how, why they couldn't come in there to get us because they couldn't find a, a way to get through the doors. So Right, right, just like a good zombie movie where they're just kind of clawing at the gate. And Yep, and that's exactly what happened until finally one of them was able to draw the same card and tried to come after us, and by that point we had banked up and we thought, okay, and it looked like, oh, we got to walk off victory for the humans. And then suddenly he drew that card and it looked like, oh, and now we're screwed because by that point he had infected everyone else in the compound except for me and this other guy. So now I'm like, oh, man. And then by a stroke of luck and a lucky die roll, some of those mindless parasites that I was talking about, for all intents and purposes, formed this death squad. They were this gigantic clump of things that kept moving around together and literally overran the entire group of infected people in one turn. It was hysterical. Right, right. Yes, you know, I'm always railing on theme in a game, and I really, you know, I don't care one way or the other, but Mm -hmm. that is a game where I just, you know, the couple times I played it, it really, you know, you do have a story to tell when you're all done with it, uh, which which I I, I do dig. I like that. Yeah, And, and it's just because the gameplay is so simple and it all just works, you have, here's a few action points. Move your guy around, you gotta trade cards. Okay, did I get a good... you know, action or item card or whatever. Great. You know, everything just works. It makes sense. There's not a whole lot to remember. There's one or two little touchy rules that sometimes you got to kind of remind yourself of. But in general, the game just works. It's just fun. So if you ever get a chance to pick up a cop and you like, let me caveat this. If you have a group that you think would enjoy that sort of a theme driven game, where the mechanics are not uber strong, but the game, but the theme carries the game and makes for a good story. Pick yourself up a copy of Panic Station, then and immediately get rid of the tin and put it in a real box. If you- I agree, yes, I agree. So big thumbs up for me. Thumbs up over here too. All right. So what and else? Keep, and people to- say I don't like games. Look at that. I like that one. Yeah. Well, there's one. Let's see if we can get two games you like all in one episode, Chris. Go for it. All right, well, here comes another one. Seven Wonders. I, too, had a birthday party this weekend, not for a old friend, but for a young child. My youngest turned five a few days ago, and we had a big birthday party for him on Saturday, and <laughs> which involves, you know, family coming over and hanging out and, you know, getting wide on some food. And uh, it also means that my brother and sister-in-law stayed the night because we were going to go uh, to a flea market the following day on Sunday. So sure. they, they stayed the night, and we, we stayed up, you know, late and got crazy with some root beer and some board games. So... <laughs> And we got to play Seven Wonders. So, um, you know, they, they are, they're slowly dipping their toes into, you know, the, the, the Euro games, the heavier, you know, board games. They, they play a lot of Euro games. They like San Juan. They like uh, Pandemic. But they also like a lot of abstract strategies, which I'll be talking about here in a little bit with, with some other games we played with them. But when it comes to, you know, games where, you know, we have to explain something for 20 minutes to a half an hour, 
they're still at the point where their eyes kind of glaze over a little yep. bit. So I saw, I thought Seven Wonders would be a good one to introduce to them. Unfortunately, because I hadn't played in a long time and I was kind of stumbling a little bit, it still took me about 20 minutes to explain it. <laughs> but nonetheless, we all played, and I think everybody, you know, for the most part enjoyed it. I know uh, my wife, Lori, had not played it before. She's dabbled with Agricola and Dominion and some of these other games before, and, and she hadn't played Seven Wonders, and she's like, oh, I really like this one. We should play it sometime. So, so yeah, Seven Wonders obviously is about, uh, you know, the seven uh, wonders of the world you, you are playing. Each player is basically a city, so you're either Olympia or Rome or Giza and you've got you know that theme board in front of you so you're building the uh, you know the pyramids of Giza or whatever the case may be sure. and the core the core mechanic of the game is that everyone is dealt uh, seven cards there's three ages uh, in the game and each age you're dealt seven cards six of which you're going to be drafting and playing so you're everyone gets a hand of seven cards you pick one you like you you put it face down you pass the stack to the person on your left or right um, and then once everyone's picked their card, you reveal it, and then you immediately activate that card. And you can, it, most cards are, are going to require resources, so you can, if you make the resources yourself, it's free. If you have to borrow resources from your neighboring cities, you can buy stuff from your player on your left, your player on your right for like two bucks. And um, and you can get these cards into play. And there's the, the cards are real basic. They're either military cards, which will help you win battles. There's victory point cards that just give you straight up victory points. Uh, there's cards that give you deals on, on resources or just give you straight up gold. Um, there's cards uh, in the third age, particularly purple cards, guild cards that give you end game scoring. And, it, it, you know, that's that's really about it. It's just a, a you know fairly quick playing, straightforward game. I love drafting in games, and uh, I really dig Seven Wonders. I know I've I've ragged on it in the past as being, you know, fairly mind-numbing as far as the decision-making. You know, you're, I still feel to this day that you're given this hand of seven cards, and it, you, there might be one or two cards that are slapping you in the face saying, pick me, and all the rest you can ignore, at least when I've played. Really? Um, yeah, I, I just, I still feel that way. I've probably played, you know, a dozen times or so, and it's just like, there's some decisions, you know, there, there are a couple times where I get a hand of cards and, you know, I have to think about it for 30 seconds or so, but most of the time it's like 10. And maybe that's just because I, I always limit my strategies. You know, I typically ignore military, uh, stuff like that. But, you know, that that could be it. But still, it's a super enjoyable, quick playing game. I love it. It's different every time you play. So, I think Seven Wonders is one of those games that, for some reason, I don't own. But I wish I did. But I never actually get around to buying it. I think that's because I know enough people that own it that whenever I'm in a gaming group, I'm usually good because somebody has already brought the thing. So we're, we're all set. I think that, honest to God, and I'm I'll, I'm going to call this here, uh, Repost Production, Antoine Bauza, and then this was picked up, wasn't this picked up by Asmodee? Isn't Asmodee the well, one that... Well, a, a, As, Asmodee did, did the European publication of it, Repost. Like, the Repost does a lot of Asmodee stuff. Okay. Maybe they're one and the same. I don't know. I'm not that intimate with board game publishers to know sure. the difference. But I know, like, Asmodee did ghost stories, and so does Repost Productions. Okay, so. gotcha. So that's sort of like how Cosmos is the German version, and then Mayfair does all of their their English stuff. Okay, that, that I get that. Um, I still think, though, that whoever designed this game, Antoine Bauza, good on you, because I think this game is absolutely brilliant for what it does. I mean, it doesn't pretend to be something that it's not. It's still, it's fairly fast, freewheeling game, but you have to love a game that can accommodate seven players and still get done in about an hour that has enough replayability that, you know, it doesn't, it's not a one path game. And I know that this is something where Chris and I will differ because I know that Chris always ignores military and, 
you know, likes to pursue the science route. And there are, there are certain paths that seem like no brainers, but I think that this game is just, there's a depth there that I think is admirable in a game this light. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's light, but there's still a lot going on in that box. And this is, this dovetails actually nicely, Chris, when I was looking at the show notes and I saw that you put it, put this in there. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, did you play the base game or did you play with the leaders expansion? Yeah, this weekend we had played with just the base game. I okay. don't have the leaders expansion, although I have played it. I got to tell you, I think the leaders expansion addresses what you said about the there's one, maybe two choices of what I'm going to pull. And how this works, folks, for those of you that haven't played leaders, is that there is an extra drafting phase before you begin the first age where you just draft leaders. You get dealt a hand of leaders and everybody drafts leaders and you'll end up with four of them, I think, or three or something like that. And then at the beginning of each age, you're going to play one of your leaders that you drafted at the beginning of the game. So that and the leaders give usually give either some sort of special ability in game or end game scoring of some variety. And those leaders, I think, can guide you, you know, depending on what you draft, can tell you, okay, so now for this game, I need to think this way because I have a leader that gives me extra victory points every time I win a military battle. Or I have a leader that lets me do this or that or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the leader's expansion adds a bunch. And the the city's expansion is on its way. Right. that does yet another thing to this. Yeah, so. yeah. Some of the lucky punks that got to go to Gen Con have some copies, but yep. Um, you know, and I don't think leaders makes it, uh, you know, the decisions more or less obvious. I think it just forces you to get out of the rut that you can get into in this game. And okay. like, I certainly know I get into, right. You know, because it's like, okay, I have these leaders and these leaders, I need to do this with these leaders. And if I don't, I'm not playing as efficiently as I could. Okay. And, and, you know, given that, then I, I, you know, I, I step out of the norm and, and I might do some different stuff uh, in accordance with those leaders. But, you know, I just feel like, like especially after age one, it, it's fairly easy to assign a victory point value to almost every card wow. for for yourself. Okay. It, you know, at least it's like, oh, I could play this card, and it costs, you know, these three resources, and it gives me five victory points. Or I could play this card, and it costs two resources, and it gives me eight victory points. Duh. Sure. I don't know. But, yeah, no, I, I definitely think leaders helps uh, players like me who just you know, get stuck in a rut when it comes to a game. And I definitely, I like leaders. And if I own the leaders expansion, I probably wouldn't play the game without it. Unless I was teaching it to people who I really thought that might be too much for or something. Um, But, but had I had it this weekend, we would have played with it. Yeah. And that's saying something because really leaders doesn't add so much extra that it would be that hard to just introduce to a, to baseline, you know, it doesn't add a whole bunch. So that way it would be something that, overcomplicates the base game for new players. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think you made a good point. It's not as much that it makes the decision making any more or less difficult, but it does kind of poke you in one direction or another and get you to play something uh, in a way differently than you would normally play. I think that that's a right. Yeah. And not just from game to game, but from age to age, which is yep. cool too. Yeah. You know, so uh, yeah, I definitely, I dig it. I dig Seven Wonders base game. I dig Seven Wonders leaders. Good stuff. And Antoine Bowser is pretty awesome. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Ghost Stories, which is another one of his titles. I really dig it. I know he's got some other highly rated stuff out there that I haven't had a chance to play yet. So, yep, I like him. Yep, I agree. This one gets a thumbs up for me, although I will say this. I think that, 
your you you made an observation before about how especially starting in like age two you can assign a point value to cards. I think that Seven Wonders can sometimes be a little bit anticlimactic. I think that when you get to age three, there can especially near the end of that, the decisions are all but meaningless because you're getting either past crap that you know you can't do anything with, or the choices are so limiting and because you're approaching the end of the game, there's nothing left to do. I guess the other the the glass half full way of looking at that is that it's the realization of the strategy you should have been building all game. But sometimes the game just sort of seems to coast to a halt rather than having a big ending. Right. I guess this, so I, that would be the only knock that I would put on the game. Other than that, and it's, again, we always forget to mention this until after we've given our opinions, but this is another really pretty game. The artwork is amazing. Yeah, um, for sure. I kind of wish they weren't oversized cards like they are. That's, I think, the only issue with the production. I would have liked them to be more like regular poker-sized cards well, than... And- yeah, and I don't. I, I still don't understand why they are. I do. You know uh, why? This one. This one. I'm. I'm calling this right here because with the IP and the printing costs and the cost of art, in order for them to recoup that and make this a profitable game, they had to charge X dollars. If you're going to charge X dollars for what is essentially a card game with a few chits for money, you better have that be impressive looking and show off that art. And I would be willing uh, to bet that that's why it's big because they wanted to show off the art that they spent a bunch of money on. That's I'm I'm calling that right now. I don't have any inside knowledge. I'm just telling you, I would be willing to bet a fair amount of money that they knew what price point they had to hit to make this game profitable and had to make it so that way people didn't feel like they were getting ripped. Because what is this a fifty dollar game, right? Yeah, but okay. you know what? What's Race for the Galaxy thirty five forty dollar game, and all that is is literally cards and poker size cards you could have had you know the same poker size cards of age of wonders plus chits for money plus the player boards and i think people would have still paid 50 bucks for it i don't know because you know like some like we're going to talk about aura at labor later oh my god all the information they stuff onto those tiny ticket to ride size well but that c now that's oh that's ridiculous and then you've got seven wonders that has like you know, no two, I, two icons. Yeah, exactly. Like zero information. Yeah. And, you know, it's the size of a dinner plate. Well, I remember I remember vividly the first time I played Seven Wonders. Um, our friend Kirby taught the game wrongly, by the way. L- love you, Kirby. But yeesh. anyway, um, he, he screwed up a couple of the rules. And I remember walking away from that first game going, well, that was not amazing. Why is everybody ranting about this game? But then the other thing that I thought was I definitely enjoy the design, but it doesn't feel like a $50 game. It doesn't feel like I can't see myself spending 50 bucks on this. And this may actually, now that I think about it, be why I don't own the game because I never, I had that first initial reaction that $50 was too much for what you were getting. You were basically getting a deck of cards, a few player boards and some money. That doesn't feel like $50. It feels like 35, like Ray's. Like Race sure. of the Galaxy. So right. I th- I honestly think that that's, I, I really do think that they had a, they had a price point they had to hit to make this game not a loss leader, you know, and they, they hit it and the game did extremely well. Don't get me wrong, you know, and I'm happy for them because I think it's a brilliant game, but I think that if they had, you know, from a usability standpoint, I would have liked to seen smaller cards, but I, that's why I'm guessing they don't. 
So yeah, yeah. I mean, the the artwork is gorgeous, and I guess I appreciate the bigger cards just because I can see the artwork better. Yeah, but true. yeah, definitely from a usability standpoint, they're they're harder to shuffle. They are they take up way more room than than they ever should. Yeah, because you got to lay all these cards out, and you got to be able to see a good hunk of the information. Well, not that there's a lot of information, but you know, you got to splay them in a certain direction and whatever. At least yeah. I have a way I do when I play, and they take up way more room than they should. Yes, and and for this being a card game, and already whenever you're going to pack seven people around a table, which honestly, seven yes. is best with seven. I don't care what anybody says. The game is best with the most people you can get around the table because then you get more people using more strategies, and therefore what you're passing on has more meaning later in the game. But when you... When you, when you play with seven people around a table and then not only are you trying to fit seven chairs around whatever table that you're playing on, but then everybody has to have their cards splayed out. This is a monster table eater as far as yes. things go. Holy cow. For a card game, this is yep. ridiculous. It is. So still gets a big thumbs up for me. I'll never turn a game of this down. Um, but And, and I really want to play Cities. I really want to get cities to the yeah. table and try that. So any board game publishers that may be listening to us, go to cubepushers.com and send us an email telling us that you want to send us lots of free copies of things you want us to review. And then we'll be more than happy. We are not above a mild amount of whoring ourselves out. Yes. And I think just yesterday we got our 12th listener. So there is an audience right there. Hey, you know what? But that 12th listener could be a game company. I know for a fact that there is one game company that subscribes to us and listens already. Well, yes, right. But I'm just saying, uh, as far as from from an audience, the the reach that we have with our reviews of Seven seven Wonders Cities. Yes. Probably not enough to validate a freak out. Well, you wait till we get to when we get to the hey. new speed. I'm going to sneak attack you on something here. That, oh no! That, you know what? No, I'll just throw it in here right now. We talked about um, the game Consequential in episode three. We did, and, and how it was being kickstarted, and that Kickstarter has been pulled since the publication of our episode. I'm just throwing that out there. Since we published episode three and we were we were making comments about how long the lead time was supposed to be until the actual publication of this game, and we, we started talking about that, and they pulled the Kickstarter, folks, so we have... <laughs> it must be, yes. It, one of our listeners has speculated that they listened to the show, and they were like, wow, you're right, we don't need to do this yet, so ha! <laughs> well, well I, I mean, I, I don't want to shoot any holes in your incredibly sound type theory there, or <laughs> water type theory, but um, I actually believe it was City of Iron we were given the most crap to about oh, a horrible part? lead time. Oh, yeah, that con- consequential is early 2013, and uh, and City of Iron is like you know sometime in 2013. Okay, well then the, I wonder if maybe he the listener because one of our listeners is the one that pointed it out to, out to us on Facebook. I wonder, right. Maybe he just typed the wrong name because I didn't research it. I didn't even look. No, you know, after he put that, I went and looked for it, and I couldn't find it. Yeah, maybe. He... So, and I, I hit up the geek trying to find news about why it's not there anymore. I went through as uh, 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 as uh Twitter feed, couldn't find. Anything. I don't know. I don't know why it's gone, man. Well, maybe, maybe the people there listened to it, got the names wrong in their heads, and then thought we were talking about them. No, no, I think that's exactly what happened. You you hit the nail on the head. There you go. All right. All right. Crap. Like, can we we should probably move on before I keep making myself sound dumb. That's all right. It's too late. <laughs> it's like five episodes too late. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. Next. Quirkle. 
Quirkle. Have you played Quirkle, Bill? Ever. Have you played Quirkle? Yes, I've played Quirkle. I've played Quirkle as well. Actually, I just played... Uh, actually, I played a few months ago, but yeah, I played the second time this weekend again with my brother and sister-in-law who were visit- visiting, mm-hmm. and um, they're, they're a big fan of these abstract strategies, and I... I do not like abstract strategies. Like okay, when when I think abstract strategy strategy in my head, I think chess or go yep. or like these games where you have to think of all the permutations and about sixty five moves ahead. Yeah, my brain does not do that at all. So I hate those games. However, if I'm going to play an abstract strategy, I will play one like this, Quirkle. I I thought it you know it's mildly enjoyable. So Quirkle, you've got these big, huge you know wooden blocks that are really satisfying to hold, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you you draw them blind out of a bag. You always have six of them in front of you, um, and the the blocks are uh, going to have one of six different shapes on them, and those shapes are going to be one of six different colors. And you basically go around the table taking turns playing as many of those six pieces as you want. Um, and you have to play them in such a way that they either um, all of the shapes match or all of the colors match. Okay, so um, you have to you you can make a line of like uh, circles. You know, one of the shapes is circles or squares or stars or whatever. And if you make you know a, 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 if there's a line of like three circles. Uh, you can add another circle to it as long as it's a different color of all the other circles there. You can add a couple circles to it. And then depending on, you know, how many uh, uh, blocks you added to that row, you know, how many blocks now exist in that row because you added to it, you get a certain number of victory points. And then after the draw bag is empty and everyone's played all the pieces in front of them, the game ends and whoever has the most victory points wins. Yep. Good so, summary. Way to make it sound way more fun than it is. Ah, uh, come on! Now you don't like I'm t- it. I'm tipping my hand on this one. Here's the thing, okay? That the, the game that you just described can be described also by another game called Rummy Cube that has been around a lot longer. It's basically the same game. Instead of colors and and shapes, you have colors and numbers. Okay, so you can do runs or sets. It's the same game. It's been done. You know, you have your little rack. You draw tiles out of the thing, and then you, you know, you you add to your runs and sets and whatever, and you get points for that. It's I I don't know. It doesn't bring anything new to the table to me, and I would rather play. I I don't know. I'm I agree with you. I'm not a big abstract guy, but to me, it's just Rummy Cube with shapes instead of numbers. Yeah, That's what but I, a way better production quality than Rummy and- Cube. Yeah, and well, I I think so. In in really? Rummy Cube, it's like I don't know. Anytime you have numbers in a game, it's immediately not accessible for a certain number of people that see numbers and think math and want to shoot themselves. That's you. Yeah, you know. No, I'm saying there there's there's a good hunk of the general population that sees a number and freaks out because they think about third grade math class and how they're a horrible failure at doing you know multiplication. <laughs> All right. So, so you add shapes and colors to a game. You make it nice and bright and friendly with these big, satisfying wooden blocks. I think it's enjoyable. Eh, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to play this, you know, every time I sit down and play a board game. Hey, guys, I really want to get to that game of brass. But first, can we play Quirkle? <laughs> That's never going to happen. Right. On the other hand, when it when I do play Quirkle, I have a good time. Okay. You know, you're, you're kind of looking at because you get these bonus points. You get a Quirkle. Imagine that. It's You get this Quirkle. 
if you make if you get a full set. So if if you place you know the sixth circle in a uh, in a set of circles, that's called a quirkle. So you get six points because there's six points in that set that you've just made six uh, blocks, um, and then you also get an additional six points for the quirkle. Um, and so you know just trying to keep an eye out for those, or maybe try to block people, or like. I don't know. I, I'm thinking sure. too much about it, but it, it's enjoyable. I, it, it to me, and I'm just I'm I'm mostly just giving you crap here. But to me, that whole description you just said about how numbers are big and scary, and let's make it colors and shapes and said makes it sound like you did the junior version of Rummy Cube. Like this is the dumbed down for people that numbers <laughs> are too scary for me. Yeah, but you know, play quirk. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm. I guess it's just. If I'm, you know, I I have fond memories of playing Rummy Cube with family when I was a kid, and when I played Quirkle, I remember four minutes into the game thinking, "Hey, I've played this." Right? Have Have you ever played Quarto? Yes. Qu- no, Quinto. Yes. Quinto. Yes. Okay, so it's basically Scrabble with numbers, right? Yep. And you're taking these tiles and you're adding them to this big square grid mm-hmm. with all the other players, and every time you add a number to a row or a column or whatever, mm-hmm. it has to be that whole row or column has to add up to be divisible by a certain number. The base game is five, but you can make that number divisible by anything. So you you add a couple tiles here, but now all those numbers, when you add them up, you have to be able to equally divide them by five or whatever. And that's, you know, when I think of games that like never made it big because of much math, like that one always comes to mind. It's like, this is a fun, enjoyable game. It's, it's, it's like number scrabble. Yes. And yet Scrabble is enormously popular, and Quinto, nobody's even heard of. Yeah. Actually, you know what's interesting is that when I was a kid, I owned a copy of a game called Numble, uh, which is Scrabble with numbers. It's the exact same thing. Okay. The exact same thing. It was Cell Show and Writer. It was that same company from the 60s, and it was exactly what you're talking about, except for the tiles had to be divisible by three. But I mean, so I played that when I was a kid. I remember, I remember vividly being played that. As a matter of fact, I just went on Board Game Geek and looked it up to make sure I had the name right. But yeah, that's, you know, so you're right. You're right. That's been done before. And there's a reason that that doesn't work and other games do. So I get it. All right. I get it. I just think, eh, whatever. It's all right. So you, but you give it a a thumbs up then? I I give it a, I, I give it a thumbs up. Up, yeah, I'm ju- I'm just a little bit past thumbs may on it, but <laughs> okay. And I think I'm I'm firmly in the meh category. It's fine. I agree with you. I don't tend to like abstracts, but whatever. This one works. Okay. All right. I placed an order from Cool Stuff. Uh, this is the same order that I got my um, Descent Second Edition that I've been talking about for a couple episodes, and I'll touch on that again in a few minutes and we'll get the latest update but i finally got the last of the games that i bought to the table i got elfin land the 1998 published game from rio grande designed by alan r moon uh this is a for all intents and purposes route building slash hand management game where you are trying to visit there's this whole map of elven cities ha 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 supposedly that you're trying to visit with all these ridiculous modes of transportation and the idea is that there is a drafting uh, mechanic at the beginning of the game where you're drafting these tiles that you'll then put on the board and each tile will determine what sort of mode of transportation must be used on any given route. And those are going to match cards that were in your hand that you had before this stage, you know, so that way you could plan out, okay, I have a lot of dragon cards, so I should make sure to get dragon tiles so I can use those 
to make to travel and certain modes of transportation are more efficient in certain terrains than others and this is this game is like i said it's been around since 98 it was a fieldless yaris winner the year that it came out and i thought that i was never going to get a copy of it because it's been out of print forever and lo and behold cool stuff had a couple copies in in inventory i don't even know how that works so i quick slapped one of them in there and i just adore this game it's you know it's not overly thematic but it's fun talking about troll wagons and elf cycles and riding clouds and you know i mean it's just a little bit silly but the, it's just got that really elegant feel to it you know you move around the board by playing cards that match the tiles that you already drafted so you're pl- you know there's a good amount of planning there's a good amount of interaction between the players because only one tile can go on any given route so depending on turn order, if the other guy slaps a tile down on a route that you were planning on putting one of your tiles on and you didn't get there first, well, now you could be screwed. And it takes your now you have to take your entire turn and replan and re-sort of jigger what you're going to do with the thing. I just can't get enough of this game. This is a thumbs way up for me. You pl- you nice. played this one, right? Yeah, yeah, I played once and it was a couple of years ago, but I do remember enjoying it. You know, as you were describing it there, you know, it brought a, brought a lot of... Uh, you know, stuff back to my my the front of my mind here about how how the game plays and how it works. And yeah, I do remember it being enjoyable. I do remember there being a decent amount of player interaction. I think um, you know, just comparing Alan R. Moon games, yeah, you know, I think I I like this one way better than like something like Ticket to Ride. Yeah. Uh, you know, even in in its advanced version sure. of Ticket to Ride, you know, I I I, I think advanced. it's good. There's an advanced well, version of Ticket to Ride. You know, you've got the base game, and then you've got all these other weird little rules they oh, added. Okay. With the all, you know, like the, the passengers and that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. The, tu- the tunnels. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I don't mean like the, like the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not the like the brass level. Okay, of ticket, I was gonna say. Not wow. Ticket to Ride brass or anything. Sign me up. I'll play that all day. Yeah, no. But yeah, no, but I, I also think that if someone, uh, you know, it's not so heavy that it's inaccessible. You know, if someone likes Ticket to Ride and they want a little bit more of a challenge, I think this is good. I mean, I don't want to compare it like that, like, oh, this is Ticket to Ride, but just a little bit better. It's it's not. It's way better than Ticket to Ride. But I just think that, you know, if you're trying to ease somebody into the board game hobby and they've played Ticket to Ride and they've enjoyed it, I think this would probably be another good step. Yeah, you know, in, in in that direction. Yeah, I agree. This is definitely a good next next step game. You know, Alan Alan Armoon is he's got every every game designer has sort of his niche, and we've talked about this before when we were going off on Stefan Feld a couple episodes ago, talking about how the impending doom feel that that Mr. Feld seems to like to put in his games, where everything's about to go wrong and all you can do is save your butt. Alan Moon's games, not all of them, but a good portion of them seem to be all about route building. And that's why I think he he has a lot of games that have train themes. He did Union Pacific and then Ticket to Ride. And, you know, it, it feels like that's just a thing for him. And this game, I think, I personally think, is the most elegant, uninterrupted version of that. It just, right. it just feels like it's the it's the cleanest design out of all of these as far as just something that that does what it's trying to do. It does it well, does it interestingly. Lots of interaction. It's pretty it's got a couple odd component choices that I still don't understand why they did. Like your player piece is this supposed elf boot that is approximately right. 437 times that. the size of everything else on the table. So you've got this ginormous wooden boot that you're moving around in these tiny little cities. And, and you're supposed to put 
one of your pieces down in every city and then collect those pieces. So the person that collected the most of their pieces as they visited each city is the winner. And these pieces are all little wooden cylinders, which means they're vacuum food, right? Because somebody sneezes wrong, nine cylinders go rolling across the table, and that's the end of you. So I, I still yeah. never understood why they made those choices, but it's still just – the game is too good. Who cares? I don't care if I'm a gigantic boot. It's still good. Yeah. So if you get a chance and you ever see a copy of Alpenland that you can pick up for a reasonable price – and it was – I mean, I, it was 30 bucks on Cool Stuff. It was – for an out-of-print game, I thought that was solid. So I don't know if maybe it's back in print, but this was definitely an older print game that I have. I mean, this wasn't a new schnazzed up anything. It was the same game that I played years and years ago when I first learned. So Right. Nice. Yeah, I, I give it a thumbs up as well. Absolutely. What's Chromino or Chromino? Is it Chromino? I'm not sure. I would Let, say Let's ask Chris Romano. about pronunciations, anyone that listened to episode yeah. three. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do this. I think well, that you are the official pronouncer of weird names from this point forward. Okay. I, w- I would say Cromino because it's a play on Domino, right? But okay. I would say Chromino because it's a play on colors like chromatics, okay? See what so, they did there? Oh. Yeah, magical. So you could probably pronounce it properly either way. Okay. Uh, so it's another one of these abstract strategies, light abstract strategies, where you don't have to think too hard, which I love. We've already determined that. Um, you basically you you're, you have these uh, chrominoes, which are just tiny little dominoes in front of you. They're not big, hunky wooden bits like in Quirkle. They're, they're, they're these little plastic uh, rectangles, um, but instead of having two ends, there's actually three parts of the of the chromo, and each each of the three parts is a color. Um, typically, they're going to be different color. Well, it depends. I I would I don't know what the distribution is, sure. but but some of the chrominos will be all the all three slots will be the same color. Some will be the same color on both ends with a different color in the middle. You know, whatever. But when you play a piece down, again, you're just laying pieces on the board like you would in dominoes. Okay. Um, but when you're laying it down, two of the three pieces, uh, two of the three colors on that chromino have to abut other pieces on two other pieces on the board um, or two other colors on the board that match it. So two of the three colors you have to be able to match on the board with somebody with with another piece that's already there. Okay. So if I've got a domino that's purple, yellow, purple. I could lay it down and match up at you know any place where there's a purple and a yellow together or a yellow and a purple together. Okay. Um, there you will come into I think you have six pieces in front of you, so you will come to a point where you have no legal plays, um, unlike Quirkle where you can always play anything. Uh, this you will come to a point where you have no legal plays, which you're going to be forced to draw from the bag on. So there's a, a draw bag like dominoes or anything uh, like that, and you you draw from the bag and and you add it to your your tableau, if you, um, or your your hand, I should say. Sure. If that chromino you just drew is playable, you have to play it immediately, otherwise you pass. And um, the first person to get rid of all their chrominos wins. So instead of playing through the bag and adding up points as you go, you're basically trying to get rid of your tiles as fast as possible. So it's uno, but with dominoes, but with colors instead of numbers because numbers are scary. I sense a theme here. Right, right, right. Um, well, in with less chaos than Uno, okay, right? Well, okay. Uno, you're going back and forth and skip and stupid crap like All that. All right, sure, sure. So yeah, no, it's again, it's a it's a lightweight abstract strategy that I can 
wrap my head around because it's just little squares and colors and the components while plastic and not wood are still really nice like my brother actually pointed out because i was like you know i made a joke like oh did you have to stick all these color stickers on here it was like no they're not stickers when i look at it closer the frame of the chromino is like this flesh-colored plastic, right? Ew. So it's like this flesh-colored plastic rectangle with a bottom on it. Okay. And then inside there are, are two little partitions, so it's got three slots in it, mm-hmm. and three squares in it. But each of the three squares is a plastic tile that's actually inserted in there. Okay. So, you know, it's not wood. I know we're all snobs when it comes to wood, us nah, Euro games. I'm not. Well, I know you're not because you play crap like Descent, but whatever. Um, <laughs> But but yeah, so like the 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 quality is still quite high. But anyway, uh yeah, and sorry we never really touched on this, but it's a 2001 title by Asmodee designed by Lewis Abraham. Hey, good job. I give it name. I give it a thumbs up. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I give it a thumbs up again like Quirkle. I'm not going to play it before I play anything else, but I will play it if somebody else wants to play. You know, I'm I I I've never played this game and I think I'm okay with that. This sounds like one of those games that somebody's aunt will bring when you say that you like board games, and they say, oh, well, then we should really try this. I heard it's amazing. I, the only way I can see myself playing this game is if I'm in that sort of a situation where someone else has brought it, and they really want to play it. And they basically, it's a family thing where there's five of us, and if you say no, you are being the jerk. Then sure, I would play it. Not, I don't think I ever need to play this one. Okay, but what's that abstract strategy, the Kinetia one that you like, with the dominoes, but they're hexes or or octagons ingenious. or whatever? Yes, ingenious, right? Okay, I, you I like that one? I, I don't love ingenious. It's okay. Okay. It's, it's and, a- and I I will say that in, if anyone's played ingenious, I mean I think ingenious is probably a better design than either Quirkle or Chromino, just because the scoring of it is super cool. You have yes. to keep your you have to keep everything balanced, right? Because you yep. only score your lowest one or yeah. something like yeah. that. It's the it's the typical Kinesia scoring, which is that your your final score is the lowest of all of your scores. So right. if you keep things balanced, you're golden. It has it does a little more than that, but yeah, it's basically that. Right, right. Yeah, so no, I know I know you don't love Ingenious, but I I know you liked it. In fact, you're the guy who pulled it off the shelf and taught it to me the first time I yep. played. So I know you can't hate it, but no, I don't hate yeah. it. Yeah. It's okay. all right. All right. No, but I, I do I do see where you're coming from though, where yeah, this is like the the aunt who's trying to be a sweetheart and buys you a board game yeah. you know, for your birthday because she heard you like board games and but she knew enough not to buy Monopoly, but instead she got Cromino. Yeah. This this actually happened to me. Real life story right here, ladies and gentlemen, in the corner of the room that I record in here in Elkhorn, um, there is a copy, a working copy of Rock'em Sock'em Robots because my one side of my wife's family does a gift exchange every year for Christmas instead of everybody buying everybody something. And the guy that got my name knew that I liked board games, but he wanted to get me something he didn't figure I had. And so he went with Rock'em frickin' Sock'em Robots, folks. So, yeah, that's that's fun. It's, yeah, for about four minutes once. Other than that, it has been sitting on top of my file cabinet as a showpiece because it gets everybody to laugh and go, oh, my God, you own Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And I say, yes, yes, I do. Don't ask. So now, now, do you do you have to play Rock'em Sock'em Robots to understand the storyline of Real Steel? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen that. But you, you know, have you seen Real Steel? 
I have not, but okay. you know, I heard all, you know everyone's making fun of it. Oh, that's the Rock'em Sock'em Robot movie game or, or movie. But um, uh, a lot of people also said after they watched it that hey, it wasn't that bad. Wasn't too bad, yeah. That's what I heard too. So yeah, I don't want to knock a movie I've never seen, but yeah, probably. Yeah, you know, I've got young kids. It's probably enjoyable to watch with them. It's nothing you're going to see me uh, waiting for the family to go to sleep so I can watch Real Steel. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right, next, you got an update about Descent, eh? Yeah. um, We, the Descent campaign that I've been talking about for a couple weeks, one of the guys that was in the campaign um, goes to school out of town, and so he was leaving Saturday of this past weekend uh, to go back to school for the year. So we got together and made a night of playing Descent, second edition, and we hammered through the entirety of Act 2 in a single night. Um, And the reason we were able to hammer through the entirety of Act 2 is because we discovered a number of what the players, not me, but the players around the table described as exploits that flat out broke some of the scenarios. Oh, awesome. So... The, what the at, hell? at the end of the thing, I kind of I sat down with the players. We didn't play the finale battle. All right. Not to be fair. So I did not play the final thing to actually determine who won and lost. But I looked at it and I said, I don't think there's any reason to play it at this point because I can't see how it's I can't see how I can possibly win. And I so I basically conceded. I knocked over my king in chess terms. They they then said that they, and this is, I never expected to hear this. They found the experience of playing Descent, the mechanics, and this is unsolicited, okay? They have not listened to the podcast, so I just want you guys to know this. They have not heard anything that I have said to you, our tens of fans, about this. Um, but they said that they felt that the system was really good, but that they felt like they were screwing me over if they were playing well. They felt like the game was all about look at the scenario, analyze it, find the exploit, screw over the overlord as hard as humanly possible, move on. And maybe that appeals to a certain segment of players, but it did not appeal to our players. The guys that played it didn't enjoy themselves. Now, there were a couple things that we had screwed up early in the campaign that we didn't realize till afterwards. So all of this gets a big grain of salt, but... The players walked away from the campaign not caring if they ever did it again. Wow, wow. But, I mean, that's kind of the inverse of what you had with your update last time where you felt the one scenario where all you had to, as the overlord, all you had to do is just spawn a crap load of monsters at the one point where everyone had to get to. Yep. So that was the exploit that I found before they did is how they described it. Because I talked about that. I sort of went through all of the scenarios at the end of the campaign and said, which ones do you think worked and didn't? I Basically, we had about an hour, hour and a half conversation at the end of our session because a couple of the guys were big night owls, and I talked to them about it, and they were like, yeah, that one you found the exploit first. That's how that worked. This one we did, and this one we did. And I was like, wow, okay. So I'm going to stand by what I said. My final verdict on Descent 2 after having played the entire campaign to its completion, is this. The scenario writing, terrible. The system, great. I think that if you are a role-playing DM, you could make a campaign or you could fix their scenarios in some way or another to tell the same story they're trying to tell, but better. And I genuinely hope that Fantasy Flight tries to do exactly that. I hope that they listen to the constructive feedback they're getting 
and that they rewrite this campaign and release it as a free update. And this is this is what I'm. I just think that that's what needs to happen for this to be workable in its current format. I think there's too much wrong with it for it to be a really great experience as is. Right. So I mean, I assume you're like me when you find something like this, you decide to you know I know you had your little group of people to to talk with it about, but mm-hmm. I assume you went online and saw what other people were saying, right, to make sure you weren't just a moron and missed something. Not you know, yet. I mean, I mean, okay. I, I have not yet, but that's because I, that day, as soon as we finished the campaign. I got into my busy season as a, I own my own disc jockey company. And so when the holiday weekend comes up, I suddenly have no time for anything. So, yeah, so I haven't actually had time to do any sort of digging, but I don't, and I I wanted to give my opinion before I let the interwebs cloud it with whatever they think. But yeah. Yeah, no, that's, and that's always a good idea too. You know, you want to make sure you've got your, it's easy to, uh, to have the group think, you know, going on. you have this assumption and then you go and research and, oh, yep, my assumption was right. But you, you need to, you know, you need to, don't let those interwebs trick you, man. You got to think through it. You got to write your ideas down and then check. And whatever you do, do not let two or three people dictate your taste in games. I mean, you know, you got to, you got to do the digging. <laughs> now, now, could that possibly be a dig on me and my holy trinity? Maybe, maybe. So I'm just saying my holy, uh, my holy Trinity. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're like frosted flakes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that same day, actually, while we were waiting for a couple of the descent players to show up, um, I busted out infiltration, which I had talked about before. And I'm just going to give you a quick update because one of the things that you had said, Chris, cause I said the game doesn't stay long enough. And you said, well, is that going to result in like dominion where do you just want to play again? I right. can say now the answer is yes, it does. Oh, good. We play because because you had you had a couple points uh, that you made that that you thought it might not be that way. Yep. Um, and it, but abso- now but now you've done it more and it is absolutely. So I pulled it out and we played four games in a row because people were having such a good time. It's like cool, oh. shuffle it up again. Let's do this. And we, we you know then we tried playing with a couple of the optional rules that are in the in the book. Like these characters start out with these items to balance out the player the starting player hands. We did that, and we, you know, tweaked. We we started even trying to think of variants that we could do to to spice the game up a little more and make for a longer play. But we know it's I'm I am officially a fan. I, I'm this my thumbs up has been more confirmed on this one. Infiltration is good. It's real good. It's not trying to be anything amazing it's not the next puerto rico but it's really good for what it is that's cool nice i i I definitely want to give that one a go so yeah yeah do it so yeah last game night i got to play terrajan again for uh my second time we talked about a couple episodes ago you and i played it together Um, right you bet right exactly and we both had a thumbs up for it but we both also agreed that we need to play it more yep to to get to wrap our heads around it right Well, I played it for a second time. Um, Mike in our game group had also played it, uh, technically his third time, but he had played in the game with you and I. Yep. And then so he played with me again last week, and we taught two new players, uh, Jim and Greg, Jim, who had watched most of our first game because he, he got there late and couldn't play anything else. Um, so he already had a fairly good idea of what was going on, and then and then Greg was, was yep. the completely fresh player. Anyway, after the second play... Both Mike and I still really dig it. I really dig it. In fact, that night I took my initial rating I had given it for my first play that was an 8, and I bumped it up to a 10. 
Really? Now, I know that might be a little bit premature, but, but it's, yeah, you... it's, yeah, 10. I like it. It might come down after more plays. I don't know. I'm not a big Steffenfeld fanboy like, like Mike in our game group is. <laughs> but I do enjoy a lot of his games. But, yeah, this one, I think, has really hit the spot for me um, more than any of his other games. And not only that, but... Mike, okay, so this is Mike's third play. This is my second play. Him and I crushed the new guys. <laughs> okay. Like, like and I'm not sign. just saying that like, oh, let's brag about it, but mm-hmm. it was obvious that both him and I had, it had finally, the system had finally grokked with us, yep. you know? Um, and, and the new guys, because it is, the, you know, we talked about the learning curve of that game. Yeah. It's definitely steep, but Mike and I, you know, we, we, uh, we're not experts by any stretch. Um, but after our, you know, our first play, I think we had learned a lot and he's, everyone said I was going to win the whole game. Oh, not the whole game, but after halfway through the game, Chris is, Chris is crushing us. Chris is, you know, block Chris. He's doing, he's going to, he's walking away with it. And then with, when it came to end game scoring, Mike, uh, Mike won. I can't remember how many points he won by. Oh my God. Um, Mike won a game. Holy crap. Hey now. I think he, he's one of our listeners. Don't turn him off. <laughs> no, we love Mike. <laughs> but no, I th- you know I think he beat me by uh, maybe ten points or a little bit less, somewhere right around there, maybe a dozen. I'm not sure. But both him and I were like thirty points ahead of everybody else, yeah. um, and both of us were way beyond how we had ended our first game. You know, you and I, you you beat me by one point in that first game. Yes. Do you remember our, our scores? We went all the way around the board and came back around that corner a few spots. So mm-hmm. and I think there's a hundred spots on that scoring track. So we were at maybe like a hundred and six or something. Something like to, that. To a hundred and five. Mike and I come all the way up and went around the other corner. So it was like 130 or something. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, I don't know if that's just how the game played out. Maybe it was how our opponents played or whatever the case may be. Or or maybe we just got the system that much more that we became more efficient at it. But, yeah, no, it was uh, it was super good. I love it. Good. And I really, I really want to play it some more. But, uh, yeah, we did find out about uh, two turns from the end that we've been playing with one rule wrong. Uh-oh. It will significantly change the game for us, I think. You know, there's those uh, that you have to meet the, the requirements of the demands of the city or whatever, right? With the, yep. the bread or the flame or the yep. whatever, the trident. I don't even know sure. what those icons are supposed to be. Again, the theme is non-existent in this yeah. game. But... You can acquire the tiles, uh, the the bread and the flame and the the trident tiles uh, as like permanent things. The Trajan tiles they can yep. be permanent throughout the whole game. Throughout the whole game, but you can also acquire these little green tiles that kind of substitute for them. Yep. The only thing with the green tiles is they go away after every turn, right? Yeah. Well, we were taught that they go away every turn. They don't. They go away every turn if you use them. <laughs> so if, if you acquire like four flame yeah. tiles and like flame is never demanded, you just keep your flame tiles. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a big one. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of big. That's awesome. Way to go. Yeah. And so Mike, you know, to his credit, yeah, he he thinks he was uh, taught the game wrong, you know. Sure. So whatever. Now, you know what? I, people in my gaming group down here tend to give me a bunch of grief because I will miss one rule and then remember it halfway through the game as that whatever that thing is that comes up. 
and I always kind of look at them and say, fine, you read the rules and teach it, you know, you know, yeah. whatever. And, and it's always just in good fun or whatever. But I, I, I it, to our tens of listeners, I'm going to put the call out there. If you have any really good stories about a fun rule that you found out at a really interesting time, you were completely screwing up and that completely altered your opinion of a game. Let us know because yeah. I love those stories and I could tell a million of them. And I just that you get that dumb feeling like, oh, crap, really? Yep. How did I miss this? So, but I, no, I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it so much. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to play. I mean, when I want to play a game again the next week, or hell, I would have even played a second time that night. Really? Instead, I played Hawaii. Yeah. yeah but well, anyway, yeah. No, anytime there's a game like that where I just want to play, 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 um, it's got to be a ten for me. Now, again, like I said, it might come back down, but so far it's awesome. That's awesome. All right, and our weekly iOS game of the review thingy that I've been doing every week. This this week, uh, Lost Cities, the Reiner Knizia classic, was actually just released on the iOS format recently, and I picked it up as soon as I saw it because I think that this is one of the all-time great two-player games. Uh, you can play a hand in person. You play against a your opponent and maybe a hand takes 10 minutes if you're lucky. It's not even that long. And then you just play a bunch of hands and whoever accrues the largest score wins. The iPhone implementation, and this is an iPhone version that if you play it on the iPad, you're going to be hitting that 2X button to make it big or else you feel like a dork playing an iPhone-sized screen on an iPad. Um, but the implementation is brilliant. And I say brilliant. They really knocked this one out of the park. It It makes sense. Everything is super intuitive. The tutorial is, unless you don't know how to play Lost Cities, meaningless because you can figure it out. Hey, I draw, drag the card here to discard it or I drag it here to play it. There you go. And then draw a card. It's just easy. It works. It's pretty. The art's meaningless, but the art was always meaningless in the game anyway, so who cares? Yeah, you know, like all like all Canadian games, yeah, like art is meaningless. Exactly. Even um, even even in his game, modern art art is meaningless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and <laughs> no, it's just it's just it's really good. There's an achievement system, and that you get quote unquote levels by beating the computer opponents x number of times or beating them in a specific way, and then it gives you weird quirky goals like win a game without using any coin cards or win a game using at least six coin cards or you know, do and make sure you have at least eight cards in a single column in a game and things like that. So it's just, it's interesting. It makes it, it get sort of like how leaders makes you play seven wonders a little differently. Those achievements can kind of get you to try stuff you wouldn't normally try in lost cities, which actually even adds a little bit more replayability than the game already had, because now there's a right. reason to, try the weird stuff. Plus there's online asynchronous play. You can play against other people and it'll match you up against other people that already. Oh, have that's cool. So it's just nice. good. It's just, it's you just, know, I, I, yeah, I like that. Uh, I like the achievement system. I, I, you know, I'm not a fancy guy, so I only have an Android phone, but I play the crap. <laughs> I play the crap out of Andromenian. Occasionally I go yeah. in fits and spurts. And when they added achievements to that, yeah, I was totally like, okay, I can beat the AI, uh, you know, probably 60% of the time or whatever. Yeah, sure. not that that wasn't still a challenge, but adding the achievements, yeah, totally. Oh, let's see if I can get this achievement by yep. getting all the province cards and giving them none or whatever. Yep. So yeah, that's that's cool. So do you like Lost Cities, uh, the actual physical game? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, I taught my wife actually at the Dice Tower convention. We she had never played it because I've never owned a copy because it, I very rarely am in two player game 
situations. Usually it's at least three or four. So I don't own very many two player games, but we okay. were, we had an hour to kill uh, before the next event that I was going to get into. And she was in the mood to play something. So I checked out lost cities out of their, out of their library and taught her and she fell in love with it instantly. This is, I seriously think the ultimate two player game. It plays as long or as short as you want it to. You can play for an hour. You can say, we'll play until the plane arrives, you know. Sure. We'll, we'll play. It takes up a little bit of board space, but not too much. It's basically just a straight-up card game. It's just solid. There's nothing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I've, I've, I've only played it once, and that was uh, the, the four-player partners variant, yes. um, which which I, I, I thought it was enjoyable. I didn't go oh, into the it? game with uh, – well, I mean, I didn't go into the game with a lot of expectations because I know some other people pan it i know a couple of people in our game group just you know have have said oh that game sucks or whatever oh, man. um so i didn't have high expectations um for it but when uh, uh when i played just the partner's version i thought that was fine but i've never just played the straight up two player whatever so no i think it's i think it's uh, it's probably one of dr Kenizia's best designs it's just it's just good and and i made the face about or about the four player partnership thing, because in my mind, if I'm going to play a four player card game, I can think of about 30. I would rather play than trying to bastardize a two player game into a partnership version. It's just like, I just, to me, that's trying to shove a square peg in a round keyhole, you know, it just doesn't right. make any sense. Like sure, why, sure. you know, if you're going to, if you got four people play something else, you don't need to play this. So, wow. We played a lot of games, Chris. Yeah, we did. That's uh that's awesome. All right, let's get into the news feed with the new hotness coming out. What, Chris, you being our official pronouncer of fun names, what's this first one on the list? <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, the, the game only currently exists with a German name, and it's D. Paleste Juan Carrera. Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, wow. so, so, so it's being released in 2012, so still this year, yay. Uh, the U.S. the English language production is going to be picked up by Z-Man Games and is designed by uh, gods of the game industry Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Keisling. Uh, the, the trend, Keisling. He's such a god. I know how to say his name properly. Excellent. Uh, Ke- it's Keisling. I'm totally going with that. All right. Nice. Uh, it, it translates to surprisingly the palaces of Kera. And I've learned through the interwebs that Carrera is a city in Italy which is famous for their marble. Uh, so it's, it's a game all about uh, the, the uh, marble production, marble trade, the marble industry in Carrera, Italy. I don't know a whole lot about this game. All I know is it's, okay, Wolfgang Kramer who did El Grande. It's oh boy. Michael... <laughs> it's Michael... That's a teaser. Keisling... Who did Vikings and a million yeah, other games, game. and, and so did Wolfgang Kramer. Hello. Yeah. And together they did T Call. I mean, come on. It, you got these two guys working on a game together. It's got to be great, right? I guess. I. This may be a teaser for the El Grande conversation that you guys know is coming later, but I I like Wolfgang Wolfgang Kramer just fine. Michael Kiesling is fine. I like Vikings. I'm not a big fan of Tikal, but whatever, I'll get over it. El Grande is my one and done for later. There's your teaser. But 
And marble trade does not sound like the most exciting theme in the universe. I got to tell you, I don't know that I care about the theme, but if the game's good, sure. I also don't care particularly about Roman politics, but Trajan's just fine. So Right, yeah, exactly. Or, so, you know, shipping from a port city in France, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's another teaser. Wow, we're just full of them today. I just, but, I can't help myself. I'm such a tease. You are, you are. Hey, so anyway, uh, we we uh, we fully admit we know nothing about this game. Sure, I did a modicum of research, but I probably could have found more had I delved a little bit further. Eh. But yeah, I'm 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 pumped. Kramer, Keisling, Keisling, whatever. It doesn't <laughs> matter. They make good games. There you go. There you go. Speaking of good games that Chris will argue with me about, Check Games Edition CGE is announcing a big expansion for Dungeon Lords called Festival Season. Uh, being released this year, it looks like. Uh, Vlada Chivadal, of course, this is one of his, I think, classics. Um, I'm a big fanboy, so what do I know? Um, it's going to change the game a little bit by adding a fifth round. So instead of just the four regular seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, there will also be the festival season. And then each season, um, one of the eight actions, it will get replaced by some special action that is only available in that season. So it's going to actually change up what the eight things are that you can send your minions out to do on any given turn. Uh, there's going to be more adventures you're going to be able to have coming after you. Two paladins instead of one during any given year. New monsters, new traps, new rooms. The ability to rebuild things that the um, adventurers have screwed up for you because you got conquered on the, in previous rounds. Um, there's going to be stuff that you can do now to fix that. Lots of extra little goodies going on. A fifth character class of good guys that's coming after you. So instead of there were warriors, priests, wizards, and thieves, now there are bards, which always hide in the back of the party and just sing a goofy little song to pump up the other guys. So that's kind of fun. I did a little bit of digging. One of the things that, just as a teaser, is one of the traps that you can set up is a stink bomb that makes the adventure at the front of the party run to the back. <laughs> so you can set traps to mess with the order of the adventures that's coming at you, which I think is pretty cool. Lots of just little tweaks to take the game, which I already think is a solid title, and just jazz it up a little bit more. So I'm kind of geeked about that one. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah, I can tell. Captain <laughs> enthusiasm. No, I've yeah. only I've only played Dungeon Lords a couple times, and and every time I think back about those two plays, I just instead of sitting around the table having a good time with friends and playing this wonderfully themed Dungeon Lordy game, I just I keep seeing for some reason myself running about five miles an hour on a treadmill that's going three miles an hour, <laughs> and I'm making headway, but I sure as hell ain't getting very far. And at yeah. the end of the day, I'm only going to be about four feet ahead of where I started. Yep. I, that, yeah, I just, there's so much, it just feels like I'm treading water in this game and then there's it's so much tedious. It's just tedious. You think so? I, I think it's uh, just like, I, I don't know. There's feels like there's a lot of options and there's not, and everything is artificially restricted. I think the theme, okay, first of all, the theme is funny, hilarious, sure. great. I think it's very well themed. I just mm-hmm. think that the gameplay is like, ugh. Oh, I don't know. No. I, I I'll play it again. I, I will. I think I give it like a six. Okay, so I'm I'm not gonna go seeking plays of it, but if everybody wants to play, I'll definitely try it and to see if if my opinion goes up or down. But I, I just see it moving. Well, here's what I'll tell you: when Dungeon Lords first came out, I got a chance to play it once, and I fell head over heels in love with the game. And it's one of the few times that I have ever bought a game at a convention just 
at full markup price without even thinking about it. I just, I matter of fact, I was at Fire and Ice Convention up in Manitowoc and managed to not have barely enough money to eat more than one or two hot dogs the whole day that I was there because I had shot most of the money that I had brought to the convention picking this game up. And I, it hasn't hit the table in a while for me either, but it's on my short list of games that I'm introducing my group to in the near future. And when festival season comes out, I am definitely going to be picking this one up. So you can expect, Excellent. you can expect me to be ramming this one down people's throats as soon as it shows up. So oh, you never do that with games. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, you know, I, I hope this, this newfound group of yours down by you just loves playing all your games because I don't. So far they do. I'm just kidding. So far. Uh, no, that, no, that's fine. You and I agree on a lot of games, but there are just some games you and I don't agree on. Yeah, but I'm going to convert you on this one. Okay, maybe. There you all go. right. Mars <laughs> needs mechanics? Really? Okay. Seriously. <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that name not awesome or what mars no it's not awesome it's a play on the really bad movie mars needs moms dear god okay Okay. yes Uh, right so uh uh, nobody is ever gonna get that play on words except for like you know a couple nerds like you and i yeah it's just it's it's hilarious mars needs mechanics okay why do we don't have to say anything more it's gonna be great Okay, no, it, it's a it's a 2013 release by Nevermore Games. The designer is Ben Rossett. Um, it's currently on Kickstarter. And okay, just the theme alone. And again, I know I've said it a million times this episode, and probably a million and one times in previous episodes. I don't care about theme, but seriously, when a game is set in Victorian England, and you're 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 all playing a bunch of steampunk engineers that are competing for a position on the Royal Astronautical Engine as the Royal Astronautical Engineer uh, to to go on board the HMS Victorious Number Seven, which is uh which is going to Mars. You know, it's just it's hilarious, right? Miskatonic School for Girls. Need I say more? No, I'm kidding. No, it's no. It sounds. It okay, sounds yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I'd say what the Miskatonic School for Girls is case in point where I, uh, where I got really into theme, and then I'm like, oh yeah, no, this game sucks. <laughs> that's that's all I'm throwing out there is I try okay, not to dive too far into the theme until I see the game. But yeah, so okay, but besides this super groovy theme that you're already head over heels in love with, what else do you know about this? Okay, well, it's a, it's an economic game. There's some set collection uh, uh, mechanics to the game. There's also this this it, you focus a lot on timing in the game. So um, being able to you know hit the 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 resource. Yeah, there's resource speculation in the game. So that's when the timing comes in. So sure. to be able to <clears throat> excuse me hit a resource when it's at its peak. Uh, you know, and, and being able to time that is going to be interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know a ton about the game. I know that there's videos out there of people playing it and whatever, and I, I frankly didn't have time to check it out. But, okay, the, the theme gets me. The name gets me. All the, right. compo- the components look decent. You know, the art is fine, whatever. It, it doesn't look like anything that's going to blow anybody away by any stretch. But I think just on theme alone, I'm definitely going to try this game. Just okay. like Miskatonic School for Girls. There you go. There you go. I tend to really dig economic games, so I'm all right with that. So I, this actually sounds kind of fun to me. I will say this. Games that where the focus is on timing to do things efficiently sometimes have a frustration curve to them that are a little bit of an off-putter to me because they can be one of those games where you screwed up the timing on this by one turn and then you get to watch the next hour crawl by as you realize that you don't have a prayer in hell of getting anything close to a winning score. But 
Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm talking completely out my butt here because you know more about the game than I do, and you've already admitted you don't know a lot. Ha, yeah. ha, ha. So, no, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. And and I do admit, I enjoy the aesthetic of the steampunk thing. I'm not a big I steampunk too. nerd, but I like the aesthetic. I think it's it's got a certain appeal to it that I can get behind. So I'm yep. rooting for it. How's that? All right. Well, I'm rooting for it, too. There you go. All right, the last thing in our news feed is Dreadball, the futuristic sports game. And by the way, the title <laughs> is Dreadball, the futuristic sports game. I didn't add that in there. Um, it's a 2012 release. It's, or plan, they're planning on releasing it and shipping to Kickstarter backers by the end of the year, is what they're telling me. This is from Mantic Games. Jake Thornton is the designer. He's a longtime Brit designer of lots of the Games Workshop-style stuff. As a matter of fact, if I recall correctly, he was involved in the original iteration of Blood Bowl way back in the day. Um, this is being kickstarted until the end of the month. They are at 750% of their backing goals, so they're definitely on their stretch goaling like crazy. Um, in a nutshell, this is a bunch of fantasy races playing a violent futuristic sport. Uh, this is being called the successor to Blood Bowl, which, if you've never played it, was basically football with orcs and dwarves and elves and things. The idea behind this, though, is that he created a new sport. So rather than Blood Bowl, which was an obvious play on American football, this is a whole new gig that he's made. The rules are sort of more streamlined than Blood Bowl, uh, shorter playtime, so it's more likely to hit the, hit the table a little bit more often. I'm super geeked about this. It looks beautiful. The Kickstarter, if you... They, the goal that you need to hit to get the really sexy set is 150 bucks, which is a lot. But I'm seriously considering it. And I have vented about what I think about Kickstarter in the past on this show. And I tend to not have a lot of faith in it. But boy, is this pretty. And if this guy had anything to do with Blood Bowl the first time around, I'm in. Wow. Have you, okay. Have, have you ever played Blood Bowl? No, I have not. I have not. So I, I, I can't say anything about this whatsoever other than it's obviously dripping in theme, which I could care less about. Yeah, there you go. Except for unless it's steampunk. <laughs> unless it's or steampunk, a royal astronautical engineer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. So, no, I'm I'm super looking forward to this one. Check it out on Kickstarter. The Kickstarter runs till the end of September of 2012, nice. in case you're listening to this in the future. <laughs> All right, let's get to our game versus game battle. This is going to be an interesting one. Uwe Rosenberg, the guy that was the brains behind Agricola, did two other little games you may have heard of called Lahav and Ora et Labora, and they are the victims of our grudge match here today. Lahav published in 2008 by Lookout Games and then Z-Man in English. Ora et Labora came out a few years later. Last year, actually, 2011, again, Z-Man and Lookout, or actually just Z-Man, I think, did Ora. I'm not sure if Lookout was involved in it or not. I don't own it. So. Yeah, and I, and I don't think Z-Man did Lahav either, but perhaps. I don't know. No. I, yeah, well, maybe he didn't. I, I, I thought he did, but who knows. I know he did Agricola. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. There you go. For sure. Yeah, Zeb did Agricola. All right. So there you go. So anyway, these are both Uve games. Um, they they both have, I don't know. They This is going to be a weird comparison because a lot of people have said that Aura at Labora was Lahav 2.0. Like this game, you know, that there was a lot that Lahab had that Aura 
kind of tweaked and changed a little bit. And then, of course, people said Lahav was tweaks and changes of Agricola. So who knows? Maybe he only really has one game and he just keeps doing new versions of it with different names. Who, who knows? But yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I there's tons of people that because Agricola was was, you know, on Board Game Geek, at least the number one game for, you know, at least a year or so. Yep. And then and then when he came out with Lahav, people were just comparing it to Lahav left and right. Sure. Uh, you know, it, I guess because it's a worker placement game. I don't know. Those games are so unsimilar, dissimilar yes. that, that I don't understand the comparison there I, other than, other than the designer, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but I think that being said, Lahav and or at Labora have a lot more in common to yes. compare. Yes. And let's not forget, this is the same guy that did not designed Bonanza. So I'm in no way saying that Uwe Rosenberg only knows how to make one game because Bonanza is even less like any of this other stuff than anything else. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. So, yeah. But no, the, both of the games involve gathering resources and possibly refining those resources into different resources that you then use to get points, basically. Um, Lahab, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, in both games, you're, you're collecting resources to to build buildings with those resources. The buildings are going to let you, you know, collect other resources more efficiently or convert resources into victory points, different stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's a worker placement aspect to both of them. Yep. But yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit here and say that this is a, this is an easy, this is an easy decision for me. Most of the other game versus games I've had kind of swing, swing feelings about, you know, it could go either way. I think that Aura Labora does one or two things better, but like in Lahav, when you gather resources by them being put on these offer spaces, and then on your turn, you can take all the stuff that's on any given offer space, or you can move your worker around and do stuff in buildings. Aura Labora, I've only played it once or twice, so I, I don't exactly remember, and it's been a while since I since I've been at the table. But you basically do the same sort of thing, but they made this super clever wheel. So instead of actually digging chips out of bins and stacking them, you know, forty seven high in the case of some of the stuff like like it can happen in Lahab, you just use this wheel and move a couple tokens around. The wheel just keeps upping the ante until eventually, when you take one of those things, you move the token to the beginning of the wheel again. So it's, right. it's got a much more elegant solution for that particular mechanic. And yeah, I mean, yeah, for, between Agricola and Lahav and Aura, he was he, he kept trying to perfect this um, resource replenishment system. Yep. You know, and Agricola at the out, end of every round, everyone has to stop pretending that they're 16th century farmers and instead have to replace everything on the board. Yeah. And then in Lahav, yeah, he incorporated it more into the game a little bit more fluidly. And then Aura, I think it's super elegant. Yes. The, the resource wheel is super elegant. Yep. Instead of, you know, this manual taking chits and stacking them on the board, when you decide to take that resource, you just look at wherever the marker is on the resource wheel, and if it's on six, you take six of them out of the stack. There's no intermediate step of moving them from the general supply to the board, which is, is a lot less fiddly, and, and it works great. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Having said that, I think that what Aura at Labora feels like to me is it feels like, and I'm actually going to say that I think it does feel like Lahav 2.0, but I don't mean that as a compliment. I mean that in the way that Windows 7 was, or like Windows Vista was the next thing that came after Windows ME or 2000 or whatever, or XP, there you go, I'm sorry. So, you know, like Vista was XP 2.0. That didn't make Vista better, folks. It right. just made it different. And that's what I think Aura at Labora does. It adds a bunch of extra stuff 
that makes the game more complicated without adding. It, it doesn't feel to me like it adds anything of value. It just adds more layers, but none of those layers. There's a couple neat things that are going on. Like I kind of dig the whole, you have your own little private deck of buildings, right? And once per turn, you're going to get a chance to build one of those, and that building is going to score other buildings that are on your little tableau, right? Right. I, I'm remembering that right, yeah, aren't I? Yes, yeah, yeah, of course, the settlements. I mean, everyone has the same hand of, of those. Right. Um, so, you know, those don't vary from player to player, but yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I kind of dig that. That's an interesting sort of sub game that happens at, at various points during well, the game. Like they're yeah. almost like little scoring rounds, but they have their own mechanic, which I think is kind of slick. Yeah, there's there's a whole spatial element to to the game where Lahav technically, when you build buildings, they're supposed to go in front of you, and other players use them. But right. how I've played since like the third time I ever played Lahav is that all the buildings, once they're built, get put in this general pool and people just put little tokens on them to indicate who owns them. Sure. Uh, it just seems to make a lot more sense so people don't have to constantly look at other, you know, what's in front of other players. Try to read things upside um, down, yeah. Right, exactly. So um, you, you can't do that in Aura at Labor because everyone has their little monastery, okay, so this is a monastic-themed uh, game. Sure. And everyone has their monastery that they're building and, and you add your buildings to your little player mat monastery thing. So your buildings have to go in front of you, Mm -hmm. but not, not just because while they go in front of you and that's where they put them, but there's a whole spatial aspect scoring to the game where you can, um, you know, certain, certain buildings are going to be worth certain points. Um, if you trigger, trigger what's called their settlement score, Mm -hmm. um, and and that's triggered by those settlement buildings that you were just talking about that everyone has has a deck of and um so you have to kind of think you know not you know how how you're going to manipulate the resources into victory points but also how you're going to you know clear your forests or 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 you know cut cut the peat moss on your player mat to make room to put the building in the exact spot you need to put it in to score the most points that is definitely a new layer to the game that he added i'm not sure i'm a fan of it see and and i feel like that layer actually was just the farmers on the more expansion for Agricola pasted into Lahav. Because I mean he did the same thing in, in Farmers on the Moor. You had wood and peat and whatever and you had to clear the places so that way you'd be able to build more pastures and and crafts. Well yeah, sure, but but he added the whole layer of okay, it also matters where you put buildings so they score. Yeah, yeah, there is that. You, you, you know, there's some buildings that have, you know, super high victory points, just straight up victory points that they'll be worth at the end of the game. Right. But but they might be worth negative negative settlement points. Mm-hmm. So if you don't put those in the right spot and you trigger them with one of your settlements, you're actually going to be losing points yeah. on that building. Yep. So, you know, that you definitely have to you know, the planning of the layout is is something I'm not sure I'm a huge fan of. I mean, it it adds something to the game. I don't know if it if it adds enough. I guess uh, my problem with that aspect of or at Labora is that I find myself concentrating on that too much. Yeah. I, I almost like ignore, you know, my resource engine and my victory point engine just to make sure that my monastery is perfectly laid out so I can, you know, get the optimal scoring for all of my yep. settlements, which, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, and you can't help. And here's the thing. The game makes you think like that, especially during the initial learning curve of it, because that is such a focus of so many different actions and so many different things that are going on in the game. 
there's so many mechanics that keep coming back to that. Like, for instance, if you have cloister cards, cloister buildings that you build, you have to build them adjacent to other cloister buildings. They're, they they right. can't be built anywhere else. So now you have, okay, if I want to build this building and therefore be able to do the stuff that it does, I better be, you know, have it built here, which means now I have to think about where I'm going to build all this other stuff. Yep. Yeah. It just, it just adds a bunch to Lahav. And I think that there is a certain segment that, maybe might have found certain things about Lahav too simplistic and wanted to do more and Aura is going to scratch that itch for them. Sure, sure. That's what I think. I just don't think I'm one of those people. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he also added in the um with Aura, he added the uh the fact that now you have three workers that you're placing instead of just one. Ah, yes, I forgot about this. Yeah, so so in Lahav you just had one worker and and you would throw him in a building and activate that building and if you wanted to activate a different building you had to pull your worker out of the previous building he was in and put him in the new one. Yep. Now with or at Labor you have three workers um and uh you put them in a building you put a worker in a building to activate a building still um but uh, you don't get that worker back until all three of your workers have been placed. Right. So once you place a worker in a building, he's there until everybody else gets placed in a building as well. Um, the other kind of twist that he added, uh, unlike Lahav, where you're putting your worker not only in your own buildings but in other people's buildings, he added the fact that you're not putting your workers in other people's buildings. You are paying the other players to put their workers into their buildings. So you can definitely take advantage of somebody else's building and activate it, but you do so um, by paying them a fee and having them use one of their workers. So now you've tied up one of their workers on them for your benefit, which I think is a neat little thing that they've added. Sure. Um, and then finally, when it comes to the worker placement, he added the prior, which one of your three workers uh, has a fancy little hat because... Uh, because <laughs> he's the prior. He basically looks like one of the smuggler guys from Manila. Sure. Um, but uh, his role is whenever you build a building, so on your on your turn, you're either taking resources, building a building, or activating a building with one of your workers, right? Right. Um, and maybe a, one other action, like cutting cutting trees or something, or cutting moss. Um, but what the prior lets you do, he lets you double up on action. So anytime you build a building and add it to your monastery, uh, if your prior is available and not currently occupying a different building, you can immediately place him on that building to activate it as soon as you build it, um, which is which is kind of slick. You know, if you work out the timing there and stuff, it works slick. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff I like with the changes of Aura at Labora, but I still I, I, I think I like Lahav a little bit more. I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, we've gotcha. been doing nothing but talking about Aura at Labora, but, you know, Lahav, I guess it's just I don't know. I, I Maybe it's because I'm better at Lahav. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I'm not sure. I just, I, I just like the feel of Lahav more. I, I don't feel yeah. in Lahav. I'm not distracted by this spatial element of, you know, placing stuff in the proper area to make sure I'm scoring the most points, and I don't have to worry about, you know, wasting an action, you know, felling trees or cutting peat moss. And uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I guess, I, I like Lahav a little bit more. I'm not sure. How do you feel? Um, I. I feel like we're tipping our hands and our little 30-second summations are going to be slightly pointless by the time we get to them. So I, I kind of <laughs> want to save it a little bit, but I think I've probably tipped my hand fairly fairly nicely here. But I think the word in a nutshell that you're looking for is Lahab is more elegant. Aura's got a lot more gears, and there are going to be people that want more chunky you know, mechanics 
more things to think about. But Lahav just has a really smooth elegance to it that I think that Orat Labora does some things better than Lahav, but in general, Lahav does the game play better. I guess that's I guess that's where I'm at. You know what I mean? Like Aura mechanically is superior in a few spots, but Lahav is a better finished product. That's I guess. Sure, sure. So, so I tell you what, let's not beat around the bush anymore. In 30 seconds or less, Chris, are you ready? Do you have a clock up this time? I do. My clock is up. I'm ready to rock. All right. In 30 seconds or less, my friend, pick your winner game versus game and go. Okay, so Aura at Labora adds a lot of cool things. The production resource wheel is awesome. The multiple workers, awesome. The prior special ability, awesome. The spatial element, not so awesome. I focus way too much on it. On the other hand, Lahav is just great. It's straightforward. It feels fluid. I can be- build my engine. I can turn the crank. I give Lahav a 10, but I still love Aura, okay? Aura is an 8 for me and could go to a 10. I just need to play it more and explore the system more. Right now, Lahav wins, but that could change. Go. Very wow, that was close. That was close. Good job. All right, you ready? I'm ready. Here's my thirty seconds Do and it. go. Lahav wins this one. Slam dunk. Not even a close race. Aura has one or two things going for it that are maybe better. Yes, the resource wheel is better. Woohoo! Let's make a resource wheel for Lahav. Sell it as a ten dollar expansion and move on with our lives. Aura doesn't add anything meaningful to the game that's going to improve your gameplay experience. Unless you're one of those weirdos that thinks Lahav was too simple. So Lahav all the way. Aura, meh. If you want to play it, sure, but I don't care. In case I didn't just piss off the intelligentsia of the gaming community enough with <laughs> giving Aura at Labora a, a resounding meh, let's do our one and done. Let's do it. One and this done is- time, and this is me on the hot seat invoking the nerd rage everywhere. Because I'm going to take on one of the all-time classics, according to themeless cube pushers that don't care at all about anything except for mechanics, and take on (laughs) El Grande. This is, yeah, Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich, published in 1995 by a whole bunch of different people. I think Hans M. Gluck is the biggest name, and then Rio Grande is the one that brought it to the U.S. Two to five players, yada, yada, yada. Here's the thing, okay? I'm not going to lie and say that El Grande is not a good design. It is. The design of it is wonderful. It's got a couple things that are okay. It's got, you know, and I've played this, I think, actually, this probably should be called a two and done because I'm pretty sure I've played it twice. Yeah. Um, It's got this groovy thing where you stick cubes in a tower and then if you can remember how many cubes are in the tower and you had the most, then that's great and... I suppose that's wonderful. This is the (laughs) biggest pile of themeless cube pushing I think that has ever been designed. Yes, the mechanics are maybe fine. It's, you know, there's, there's stuff that I can recognize the value of from a game design standpoint, but I seriously can feel myself fighting the yawns (laughs) 20 minutes in. The game has no variability whatsoever that isn't user generated. You're playing on a, on a static map with this, with a static turn order. It's always going to go this many turns. It's never going to change. It's, and it's even ugly. Here's the thing. See, I could forgive all of this if the game was not a gigantic, ugly thing 
But all you're doing is literally sticking piles of little cubes of your color in the different territories and then trying to manipulate this obnoxiously large black pawn to get to the place so it scores your stuff and not the other guys. And I, I have yet to have anybody convince me why I should love this game. That's, you know, I mean, I want to. I know that it's supposed to be amazing. It's just boring as hell, Chris. Why am oh, I wrong? Man. Prove me wrong. What's well, not boring about this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess that depends on your taste, uh, obviously. But, uh, you know, I, I also like games, and this is probably going to give you another idea for a one and done, but I also like games like Hansa Teutonica, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when you said, you know, there's never been designed a, a more themeless cube pusher, oh, my God, Hansa Teutonica is sitting right there next to it at least, right? But no. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, if you made me choose between the two, I'd play Hansa Teutonica any time. And that's sad because I don't like that game either. But at least <sighs> Hansa Teutonica, you're sort of building these routes and there's like an area control thing going on. And, you know, I mean, and, and this has that too, but it, I, oh, man. Well, okay, but first of all, I mean, you've, you've expressed to me, uh, you know, off record, so to speak, uh, that you don't enjoy area control. I mean, I, I think don't. that's one of you, you don't like to call. No. You don't you don't like this game. No. Nope. You know, I mean, I ragged on Arkham Horror last week, but I didn't rag on it last week. You know, I don't I don't rag on Arkham Horror because I don't like co-ops. That's true. You know That's what I'm true. saying? Um, so, I mean, if you're not a fan of area control, you're just you're not going to like this game. You're also not going to like to call and you're not going to like about one hundred and one thousand games out there. Um, that's, that's, but, you know, and I totally admit it's themeless. Uh, I totally admit it's not real pretty. Yeah. I think the I think I think the board is not horrible. Um, yeah, is better 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 boards exist. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, the the cards are the cards are very ugly. Yeah. Um, you know the the it's it's cubes, right? This came out the same year as Settlers, right? Uh, so, before, yeah, the same year, ninety five. Ninety five, right? And I just like okay, you know, the, both games are old, and you you can kind of see age on on both of them. Yeah. I just I just think that El Grande was light years ahead of. Settlers. No way. They, they both came no. out at the same time. No. Oh my. No, yeah. No. No. You know why? Because Settlers has a different board every time. Yes, sure, you're rolling dice and that can be annoying or whatever, but every single time. Let me put it to you this way. Are there El Grande World Championships that there are qualifying rounds all over the the country and the world to play in? No. Okay. Oh, okay, well, if we're going to use that metric as a good game, then Monopoly is amazing because people have been playing Monopoly championships before Klaus Teuber ever was born. All right, fair enough. But my, I'm not saying that that's what makes Settlers a better game. I'm saying that the variability that Settlers brings to the table is why you can do things like that with it that you can't and wouldn't ever want to do with El Grande, even though, according to BGG, El Grande is ranked much higher than Settlers. It's the 15th ranked game overall and 16th in the subcategory of strategy with an average rating of 7.89, which I don't know if that even means anything but for the the geek ratings are so subjective anyway. But it means I got awesome. I, no, it does not mean it's there's, awesome. There's it just there's there's, there's, there's so of... many there's so many layers of this game going on here. It's just the the the, the main thing that I think keeps the game interesting for me is the cards that you pick at the end. You know, after sure. you take your turn. I mean, not only is that going to 
determine, you know, how many dudes you're putting on the board um, when you get to put guys on the board. But it also lets you mess with people. And, you know, there's there's always this internal conflict where, okay, if I take this card, I'm going to be able to do this awesome thing, which is going to be super great for me. And there's a scoring round coming up, and it's going to mean mean I get a lot of points. Uh, but, uh, but... Uh, I'm sorry, if, I, I if dozed I, off if, there while if, you were describing if, that. If I, do, if I do take that card then it means I'm ignoring this other card. And if I don't take this other card, somebody else will. And that means uh, I'm going to get a kick in the pants. I don't know. There's just, uh, there's, it, it's simple. It's elegant. You can explain the game for the level of, uh, you know, layers that are going on here. You can explain the game relatively quickly. Um, it's, it's easy for people to get their head around, but yet there's, you know, every game you play is different just because, even though the board doesn't change, I completely admit that where you start on the board changes, which I guess may impact that a little bit where you, where your placement is on the board sure. and where where the king starts, the big black okay. pawn you're talking about. Yeah. You know that changes. Um, right. So I think that that helps with the static board a little bit, but the 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 cards are where it's at. You know. Okay. Um, and, and, and I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. For, I didn't no, mean to interrupt you. No, go for it. All I was going to say is that this is why I said at the beginning that I can recognize the the, the it's a good design, and and let me let me be really clear on this. Okay, I know that this is a well designed game. I get that. What I'm saying is that well, and first off, I'm gonna I'm coming after you in a second here, Chris. But this game, I just it's no fun. There's nothing fun in that box. There's just it. There just isn't. There's mechanics that have no reason to exist except for to be mechanics, which fine. Okay. You know, there's a lot of games like that. And I'm not trying to say that every mechanic has to have a thematic reason to exist, but I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, some of your most favorite games like, like brass and Lahav and stuff. I mean, uh, what are you doing in that game that just gives you the giggles? Well, well, here's the thing. You know what? I'm 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 gonna take issue with that slightly, my friend, and say that I can at least make some sort of a rationalization on how the clay offer is building up because it hasn't been harvested in a while, and so because nobody's taken it, you know what I mean, and nobody has seized. It's an abstraction of me seizing an opportunity, you know what I mean, to to harvest a thing. Sure. I, right. I can at least make up some sort of BS argument in my head. I can't make up a BS argument for why this card gives me four soldiers and this special ability, whereas this one only gives me two or whatever. You know, it just, I, I don't know. There's a disconnect in there that I can't get past. Plus, and this is the other thing that I'm going to say. You, my friend, have been one of the people that has railed against hidden trackable information. And if there has ever been a game that has its almost one of its primary mechanics is that. So how do you explain that one, Lucy? You know, you. Okay. Yeah, I would prefer playing uh, El Grande with the Castile where you're putting your. your, uh, you know, your pieces in that, that little bit of hidden trackable information. Uh, I, I would, I, I would be perfectly happy playing without, without the Castile. I realize that that takes away the entire purpose of the Castile, but I really don't think that that information is not that hard to track. 
Wow. In my head. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not tracking it every time I play, but I know if I wanted to in my head, I could. There's not, you know, oh, he got three of this resource and two of that resource, but this guy stole one from him, which means he now has one less, but that guy has one more. There's none of that going on. It's okay. I added two cubes. I added three cubes. That's like basic arithmetic. I can manage that. Right. But when you're trying to wrap your brain around the other stuff that you're supposed to be with all these lovely layers that this game supposedly has, I don't want to have to segregate a part of my attention to something like that. So I I, I concede your point. You're right. It's not that hard to track it if you really wanted to devote time to it. I guess my problem is that I don't want to devote time to it, and I feel right. like there's too much other stuff I'm supposed to be trying to concentrate on. It's just bleh. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, and one of the other reasons that the Castile is a little bit more palatable for me is the fact that I ignore it every time I play. Ah, okay. I, I do really well at that game. I mean, it, I don't do well at many games. He'll be the first to test that <laughs> right I'm after me. i on that one. But there are certain games I think I do fairly good at. Now, Grande is one of them. I, I will place either first or second almost every time I play. And I know that that sounds like horrible bragging, but it also comes oh. along with the fact that I suck at just about every other game out there. <laughs> so when I'm good at a game, I'm gonna let you know. Let There's me tell right. you. But uh, but but it, I oh, the point I was getting to is that I do well at that game, and I completely ignore the hidden trackable information point of it okay. because I don't invest in the Castile at all. I just invest in the stuff on the board. I don't care about dumping stuff into the Castile. Who cares? Okay. There's, you you brought up you brought up a point earlier that I want to make sure that I say something to so that way people don't think that that I am universally against area control games because that's not actually true. There are certain area control certain games that I believe have a significant area control aspect to them that I really really enjoy. Um, as an example, I'm a sucker for election games, and if you tell me that you don't think election games are area control, then I'll tell you you're nuts. Because at the end of the day, while you may not be comparing the number of cubes that are piled on this space versus the number of cubes on that space, you are definitely controlling who has the most votes in any given space. And I think that that's, it, for all intents and purposes, the same thing. I think there are other games, and we're going to tip our hand for our preview for next week, like Power Grid and Wealth of Nations, that have significant area control aspects to them as well, that I absolutely love. Power Grid's in my bio in five, I believe. You know, so it's yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'll, I'll, I definitely will agree with you there that there are other games you like that have an area control aspect to them. But I think any games that uh, where the area control aspect is piling up a boatload of cubes on a on a single space and trying to stay one cube ahead of another player like El Grande, like Call, maybe it's just that aspect you don't maybe. like. I don't know. Maybe, but there are a couple other games that I have played that I don't mind. Like, for instance, there's a game called Jerusalem uh, that's uh, done by Elfenworks that I think is fine. Actually, I think they carry it for another company, and I can't remember the name of the company off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, that has a similar aspect, but a very simplified version of it, where the person that's got the most stuff in each space is going to get some sort of a, a bonus. There are games like that that I feel like, are, are at least interesting and fun, and this just ain't one of them. I don't know. So, you know, it's just, maybe it's probably just me, you know, I will be your lightning rod of hate gaming universe, you know. You want to throw your nerd rage at somebody, send it my way, but there's... Oh, it's coming. Oh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. There's just nothing fun in this game, man. There's just, <laughs> it's... It's one of those games, and I've got another one that actually this discussion just reminded me of for the next time I decide to do a one-and-done. 
that I know I'm going to be able to throw in there that's that and I'm not going to tease this one. Don't don't do it. Or at least I will endeavor not to. So there you go. El Grande. All right, Bill. I'm done. I, I don't ever need to play that thing again. That's a um, by my rating system on on Board Game Geek. And by the way, any of you that want to, please look me up. I'm uh, Dourgrim on there. D o u r g r i m. Um, I just actually messed with my thing and made sure that I had rated everything. And I, that one, I believe, is a four for me uh, because oh, that's it's sad. yeah, it's not eh, no. I mean, I guess if everybody was really hell bent. I would, and by my rating system that I stole from another guy, it's a below-average game I avoid playing and would need to be persuaded. So there you go. Excellent. All right. Well, I am very disappointed in you, despite the fact I went into this episode. In fact, I've I've known about your hatred of El Grande for <laughs> for a couple years now. I am sort of uh, vocal I, about it. After just hearing you talk about it for such an extended period of time, I almost hate you a little bit more. Yeah. Well, that's all right. That's all right. You're as we discussed last episode. You're very good at being wrong. I'm also, I don't know, I don't know. Very good at Lahab. We've covered that. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, Chris, we made it. See, we're getting there. Four episodes down, only about 196 to go before we can really celebrate. That's right. We did. Yay. So next week, our game versus game death match. Speaking of which, we we teased this a couple minutes ago. We're going to put... Two of the great economic games, in our humble opinions, up against each other. Wealth of Nations and Power Grid are going to go head-to-head in our game versus game next week. And Chris has what he calls a guilty pleasure. And I think this this one is going to be one where you're going to get some hate flow just by you calling it a guilty pleasure at all, Chris. Yeah, it's it's Scrabble. Ugh. How is that not a guilty pleasure? Because- if you enjoy Scrabble, it's a guilty pleasure. I don't know. Okay, I should say, if you enjoy Scrabble and you also enjoy Brass, it's a guilty pleasure. All right. All right. That's fair. Um, a couple quick kind of meta notes about uh, this episode and future episodes. Uh, we just wanted to make sure that we made a point of telling you guys that the longer format that you're seeing is probably going to end up sticking in the future. We had originally, when we launched Cube Pushers, had said, oh, we'll keep it at about an hour, hour, 15 minutes. And then we decided we like to talk too much. So we're going to st- these these longer episodes are probably going to be where we're going to be heading in the future but we are going to start including timestamps in the show notes so that way you guys can find whatever your favorite segments are more easily. So if you don't have time to listen to all 2 hours or whatever it is of our show, you know, you'll be able to fast forward to we'll we'll tell you where, you know, minute and second you can start listening to whichever segments you're really looking forward to. Yep. So, and we are always listening to you guys. So we love your feedback. Keep it coming. Those of you that have been commenting on our, on our various forms of social media, keep, keep the comments coming. We love it. We are at cubepushers.com. We have a Twitter at, at cubepushers, facebook.com slash cubepushers. And you can also, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, we are part of the ghost hat network and you can find us in their master feed and our own feed is on the way. Um, we have got the feed set up where we're under the iTunes review process, and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> For some, iTunes apparently has to rubber stamp us before we'll get our own feed. So that's on the way. You'll be able to subscribe to us directly. But in the meanwhile, 
If you feel like leaving a good five-star review on iTunes under the Ghost Hat Network podcast, we'd love you for that. If you feel like leaving a one-star review, go put it on somebody else's podcast. That's true. Also, you know, you brought up a good point, Bill, that uh, how we can be found on BoardGameGeek. You had mentioned your handle a little, a little bit ago was Dowergrim. Yep. Um, and I, I can also be found at Henry Fatass. <laughs> yep. And for, for any iTunes reviewers out there, I hope that doesn't earn us the explicit tag. Because it's just my name, people. Yeah, no. I've, if you've been watching cable TV anytime recently, you know that that word is no longer a swear, apparently. Good. So there you go. So until next time, folks, I'm Bill Corey. And I'm Chris Henry Fatass Dunbar. There you go. You've been listening to Cube Pushers. Take it easy and keep gaming. You've been listening to Cube Pushers, a proud member of the Ghost Hat Podcast Network. All music for this episode is graciously provided by royaltyfreemusic.com. For more great entertainment, visit ghosthat.net or keep up with us two fools personally at cubepushers.com. Thanks for listening and keep gaming. Keep gaming.